Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Sean. And we're Policy Nerds. Policy Nerd Nights, hosted by Level Up California. On today's episode, HR1, otherwise known as S1, the For the People Act, or the largest anti-corruption bill the U.S. has seen in a long time. Fighting political corruption makes sense, no matter your political perspectives, but how do we go about it? In this episode, we're joined by an incredible panel of speakers as we break an 800-page bill into approximately one and a half hour long breakdown. Special shout out to our co-host, Represent Us. Let's jump in. We are thrilled to have collaborated with Represent Us San Diego and Bay Area on tonight's panel discussion about the largest anti-corruption bill our nation has seen in a long time. And we're more than honored to be sharing the stage with some incredibly accomplished and fascinating panelists. I really need to start off by expressing gratitude at having a chance to work with this great team. I'm genuinely excited to help organize a nuanced, educational, and hopefully entertaining evening of fact-based civil discourse. Amari, what is our actual goal here tonight? So our main goal here is to dive into the details of the For the People Act, also known as HR1, which is already passed in the House of Representatives. For tonight's policy panel, we will focus on providing a factual, nuanced, expert-led conversation to try to understand what this 800-page legislation actually does. We hope that every viewer is able to walk away with a much more comprehensive understanding of the legislation as a whole. While we recognize we cannot cover every detail of HR 1, the panel will address the effect on our democracy, discuss its merit, and its constitutionality, and try to give some background as to why this game-changing legislation is so important. So Gabe, do you want to go into the structure of this evening? Um, sure. First, if you've been following this legislation, a similar version was first introduced in 2019. Since then, HR1 has been widely discussed, dramatized, and oftentimes demonized, where cable news pundits and journalists have continued to editorialize the conversation, oversimplify it, and pack it in a way that neatly fits into some agenda. In creating this event, we recognize that we need to do better. We are breaking our segment up into three, we're breaking our discussion up into three segments. First will be voting access and redistricting. Second will be campaign finance. And third will be ethics and security. We will begin each segment by offering a brief overview of the expansive legislation before we turn the conversation over to our expert panel, where they can provide the nuance and real-world implications of the bill. Sarah? On that note, we are so excited to finally introduce our panel of experts for the evening who are generous enough to offer their time for us tonight. These professionals work on the front lines daily in the battle against corruption in U.S. They work to expand voting access, reform campaign finance, and to ultimately ensure that politicians are held accountable to their bosses, we the people. So without further ado, let's meet our panel, Gabriel. So as our moderator this evening, Dan Schneer will be keeping the conversation going as we work through our policy segments. Dan is a professor at UC Berkeley, Pepperdine, and USC in the respective institutes of government studies, the Grad School of Public Policy, and the Annenberg School of Communications. Dan also hosts a weekly town hall webinar for the LA World Affairs Council called Politics in the Time of Coronavirus. 
Dan has worked on four presidential campaigns and three gubernatorial campaigns, including as the director of communications to late Senator John McCain's 2000 presidential run. Dan has since worked on groundbreaking campaign finance disclosure requirements and co-chaired a bipartisan reform effort in California to lay the foundation for their landmark independent redistricting commission. He is a registered independent, no party preference voter. Welcome, Dan. And can you please tell us why you are passionate about corruption reform efforts? Well, sure. First, uh, I, of course, I will. First of all, Gabe, I want to thank you for that very kind introduction. It might not have sounded like all that much to many of you but my students at Berkeley handed in their final papers at the end of the semester today. So Gabe, you are the first person under the age of 40 to say something nice about me all week long. And I'm very <laughs> grateful. I'm very grateful for it. Um, I also wanna thank uh, Gabe and Amari and their entire team at Represent and wanna thank Sarah and Sean and the entire group at Policy Nerd Nights for the tremendous work that they are doing, not just in putting on tonight's program, but all day, every day in advocating for meaningful campaign reform. That's how change gets made. And I can't tell you how impressed all of us are by the work that you and your colleagues are doing. So thank you so much. Um, why do I care about fighting corruption, Gabe? Well, because I have students at my schools who are the fourth and fifth generations in their family to attend the universities they go to. I have students in my classes who are not only the first in their families to go to college, but the first in their families to graduate from high school. And I believe that that young person, regardless of her or his civic goals and interest in community and political engagement, deserves just as much right and just as much opportunity to make a real change. And the only way to do that is to level the playing field for them. So every one of them gets that opportunity when they decide it's their time to step up the way you and your colleagues have. That was wonderful. Thank you so much, Dan. It's an honor to have you moderating and thank you again for being here. So our next panelist for the evening is Cindy Black. Cindy Black is the executive director of Fix Democracy First. As a leader, Cindy has made it her goal to ensure that the government works for the will of the people not for the power of money. Cindy was campaign director for the successful Washington I-735 ballot initiative that called for a constitutional amendment in campaign finance to end court decisions like Citizens United. After the campaign, Cindy expanded her team to lead on other paramount issues, such as increasing voter voting access and creating alternative voting systems such as ranked choice voting or RCV. Welcome, Cindy, and thank you for your commitment to building coalitions, to helping to pass common sense, pro-democratic with a small d, legislation reforms on both local and national levels. So again, welcome, Cindy, and can you please tell us a little bit about why you are passionate about the fight against corruption? Yes, uh, thank you so much for having me. I want to thank Policy Nerd Nights and represent us, San Diego and the Bay Area for putting this together. I think it's really important that we have discussions like this. Um, for me personally, I got involved with this because I really saw the influence of big money in our system and felt that we really needed to do something about it. Um, I actually have two grandchildren that I said, you know, I don't want them growing up in a system 
where they don't really have a say and you know big moneyed interests are have taken over so i actually used to sell art supplies before i took on this job and decided that you know this was much more valuable use of my time and so i'm dedicating pretty much the rest of my working life to working on these issues and and hopefully moving our democracy like you said with a small d forward wow thank you so much um, next up is Trevor Potter. Um, Trevor Potter is the founder and president of the Nonpartisan Campaign Legal Center. Campaign Legal Center seeks a future in which the political process is, is accessible to all Americans, resulting in a representative, responsive, and accountable government. Trevor Potter is a former Republican chairman of the Federal Election Commission and was general counsel to John McCain's 2000 and 2008 presidential campaigns. To many, he is perhaps best known for his recurring appearances on the Colbert Report as the lawyer who helps Stephen Colbert set up his super PAC during the 2012 election. Um, the American Bar Association Journal has described Potter as hands down one of the top lawyers in the country on the delicate intersection of politics, law, and money. Potter has recently appeared on CBS's 60 Minutes with Anderson Cooper, on CBS's uh, Face the Nation, and on uh, NBC Nightly News, and the films Dark Money in 2018 and The King in 2017. His writing has been featured in publications such as the Washington Post and The Hill. And as a special shout out to our savvy Represent Us viewers, um, we could also thank Trevor for being one of the main architects in crafting the American Anti-Corruption Act that we really hold dear to, to our fight against corruption. Um, welcome, Trevor. And can you please share what drives you to do this fantastic work in corruption reform? Thank you, Gabe, very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you all to see uh, Professor Snur again after a while. Uh, and uh, to work with Represent Us, uh, I, which I've had the pleasure of doing for now for a number of years. I am always a little nervous when people make a Colbert reference, uh, so I have to remind you of what it was that his staffer said to me just before she shoved me through the curtain for my first time on the set with Stephen. She leaned over and she whispered in my ear, just remember, he's the funny one. So I, I uh, warn you that most of what I have to say does not uh, rise to the level of uh, Colbert humor, but uh, just as he focused on money and politics and the dangers of corruption and uh, the possibility that large and particularly uh, secret money uh, would buy legislative results and uh, overpower the voices of average Americans. Uh, so I worry about it. And I, I have uh, that's I have since I was at the Federal Election Commission and since founding uh, CLC now about 20 years ago, uh, worked uh, on the McCain-Feingold reform law and then through CLC uh, on advising on HR1, S1, the uh, big reform bill we're going to talk about tonight, and we're trying to figure out uh, how to get that through uh, the Senate because we think it really will make a difference in making uh, elections more open, uh, fair, transparent, and ensuring that uh, average Americans do, in fact, have their voices heard in Washington. Well, thank you so much, and we're very happy to have you. Our next panelist is Mark Gaber, and he is the Director of Litigation at the Campaign Legal Center, often referred to as CLC. 
He has worked on a number of redistricting and voting rights cases and has represented the CLC as a Mickey counsel before the Supreme Court. Those cases in particular challenged racial gerrymandering in Virginia and North Carolina. Mark has also served as co-counsel with the CLC, challenging Alabama's felon disenfranchisement laws, as well as having argued a 10th Circuit appeal in a case involving the redistricting of Albuquerque's city council districts. He's obtained multiple bars in numerous circuits in the United States Court of Appeals and the US Supreme Court. Welcome to our conversation, Mark. Thank you. Um, and as for why I'm interested in this, I, I, I come from the state of Wisconsin, which, you know, always had sort of a, well, it was always court appointed, but as a result of that bipartisan districting maps for most of my life until 2010, in which probably one of the worst gerrymanders uh, in American history uh, was put in place and has resulted in the inability of uh, the voters to access elected office for their chosen officials uh, and has skewed policy in the state of Wisconsin and has made it so that the, the politicians are choosing the voters rather than the other way around. Uh, and so I was drawn uh, to CLC in particular for its work in that case to try to fight partisan gerrymandering. And though the Supreme Court uh, saw otherwise, uh, our work continues and HR1 uh, would do a lot towards uh, solving that problem. Thank you very much. Uh, so ladies and gentlemen, that's our panel and uh, we will go ahead and kick off and start this uh, start this show. We'll jump into HR1 explains and the access, voting access and redistricting. Um, not many things in our democracy are as sacrosanct as the right to vote. The baseline acceptable criteria is that all eligible citizens um, should have the constitutional right to cast their ballot. This gives voters a voice and they should have the right to choose their representation instead of representatives choosing their voters. This gives voters their power. HR1 creates a system where there's a clear set of minimum requirements for each state to meet, and many of the provisions have bipartisan origins at both the state and federal levels. Um, here are some quick ways that HR1 is changing the game to unrig our political system. And this will be brief, but HR1's modernization of our current voting registration system is really aimed at making the system safe, secure, easily accessible and more accurate. Things like auto automatic voter registration already implemented in 16 red and blue states can save money and ensure accuracy where agencies that we know and trust will participate in voter registration. Think places like the DMV. Same day registration, which has already been implemented in 21 states, red and blue, will become the standard. Vote by mail, popular with voters and already implemented in 29 states. Um, again, red and blue will become the norm and best practices will be used to ensure that it is done safely and securely. The list goes on and on. Interstate cross checks, consistent early voting access, election integrity audits, paper ballots, reaffirming voter rolls. Um, these are all intended to increase security and expand access. And that doesn't even get into the gerrymandering conversation where politicians are able to choose their voters. This is wrong for any party. Our moderator, Dan, has worked gerrymandering reform in California. Mark has argued in front, argued in front of the Supreme Court. So you guys are the experts. Please take it away. Okay. Well, Gabe, thank you very much. And I think that overview was just the scene setter we needed before we dig in to a deeper conversation with our expert panel. And for those of you who might be a little bit newer to this conversation, I will tell you that Cindy and Mark and Trevor are three of the nation's leading experts on these issues. We're lucky to have them with us today. Um, I know that Sarah and Amari wanted us to go through the bill 
page by page, all 800 pages. And unfortunately, I don't think we're going to be able to pull that off in the 90 minute segment. So what I'm going to do, if it's okay, is ask each of you a few questions. And uh, as Gabe mentioned earlier, we're, we've, we've, we're dividing the bill into three segments. Number one, voting access and redistricting. Number two, campaign finance. And number three, ethics and security. And still leaving time at the end for questions from our audience and our participants. So let's go through these segments one by one and ask each of you to help us understand this very complicated bill uh, in, a, you know, in a way that allows us to become better advocates for important reform. And Cindy, I'm gonna start with you, not so much with a question about the bill, but rather a question about the concept. Look, we're a 50 state country and each one of our states is extraordinarily unique with different challenges, different opportunities, different demographic and ideological makeups. A lot of smart people would argue that each state is uniquely well positioned to decide for itself what type of voting standards ought to exist. So I guess the first question I'd ask, even before we dig into the details of the bill, is why is it so important to have a national set of standards for states to follow rather than letting them make these decisions for themselves? Um, yeah, I think that's a great question because why do we want more uniform standards for all the states? I think one of the biggest reasons is access to the ballot and making it easier for people to be able to vote and, and that we all have the freedom to vote as Americans and we should have a more consistent uh, way to do that. Um, and in Washington state, for example, we've had automatic voter registration and same day registration. We've been an, um, a mail-in vote by mail state for a dozen years or more. And we've really found that it doesn't benefit either party. It makes it simple. And that's what I think this bill does. It tries to simplify the process across all the 50 states. And so we all have a consistent way to vote regardless of where you live or who you are, what color you are, your demographic, your background, any of those things shouldn't matter. We should all just have consistency and make it re remove any barriers to voting. Especially, I think what we've really seen is there are some states that are putting forth a lot of different bills right now that actually would create more barriers. And the bill for the People Act would actually make it consistent and it would make it easier for people to be able to vote, simplify the process, so we all have the same access to voting. It doesn't benefit one party or the other. We've seen that in Washington, voting by mail doesn't benefit one party or the other. It just makes it consistent, makes it convenient for voters and simplifies the process. So I think this is just a good overall way to modernize the election. And I think it's really long overdue that we do this. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Certainly there's no, there's no shortage of policy matters that are best handled at the state and local level. But I think you make a really important point why a federal standard is, is so important. I have many of the questions I'd like to ask you, Cindy, but I wanna bring Mark and Trevor into the conversation first. And so Mark, we're really lucky to have you here. I have to say, I didn't realize that you were a fellow cheesehead. And so we'll have to talk a little bit later about the Aaron Rodgers controversy. But before we get to that, more important things. Um, one of the ongoing debates as it relates to voting access is what seems to be a never ending argument between the two parties about the importance of voter 
access versus voter fraud. And let's agree that both are important. Providing access to those who deserve it is critical to the functioning of our democracy, but so is preventing those who are not eligible from participating. How does this legislation address both of those concerns? Well, it has a lot of provisions uh, that deal with both. Um, we saw in the 2020 election, some of the best, uh, highest voter participation uh, in our history. And one of the reasons for that kind of counterintuitively was the pandemic that a lot of states that had very restrictive mail-in voting rules eased some of those uh, to allow folks to vote by mail. And you saw near uniform appreciation for that from the voters. And so what this bill does in part is uh, ensure that there is that type of no excuse, uh, universal mail-in voting available to voters across all of the states, stopping some legislation that's in place now to restrict that and, and oh, you know, overriding some state statutes that otherwise would do that. It, it solves some, some problems that voters face. In Pennsylvania, for example, there was a, a statute that required your a ballot to be received by election day. Well, voters don't control the mail. And so they have no way of knowing whether the ballot they've mailed, say five days before the election, will actually be received by that day. So this sets a standard that the postmark has to be by election day, which is sort of a, a uniform standard that everyone can comply with. Uh, it requires same day voter registration, which helps to alleviate some of the voter purge issues that voters have faced in states across the country for the, for the past decade in particular, and in particular following a, a bad Supreme Court decision out of the state of Ohio a few years ago that applied a sort of use it or lose it rule for voting. And, and that, that should not be uh, the metric against which someone is judged able to vote. Uh, so there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of voter protections in here they're balanced with, with voter security measures. And, you know, it's not just this, the kind of the red herring of in-person, you know, in-person uh, uh, personifying someone else who's not, you know, you're saying you're not who they are, uh, but it actually gets to voter security issues. So there's measures to prevent hacking of voter rolls. There's funding for kind of white hat uh, hackers to make sure that the systems are secure and encouraging them to be checked. There are still requirements if you're a first time voter and you are registering by mail or online, you have to provide, uh, if it's online, you have to provide your handwritten signature. So there can be proper signature matching in states that do that. And you still have to provide some form of uh, federal ID or a utility bill if you're a first time registrant by mail. So it, it maintains those sorts of security measures that I think everyone agrees are important but it ensures access and it's that balance that, that this bill seems to get right uh, and avoid some of the kind of false narratives uh, that have driven a lot of the conversation before this. Well, Mark, that is very, very helpful. And what I'm gonna do is I'd like to stick with you for just a minute and partially switch the subject because this first segment is on both voting access and redistricting. And I must admit that redistricting is a particularly important hobby horse for me. It was the very first issue I worked on in the California governor's office many, many years ago. And what I came to believe then is that letting politicians pick, draw their own districts is like letting teenagers set their own curfews. So that even if everybody starts the evening with the best and most noble of intentions, 
when the hour gets late, self-interest takes over and bad things happen. So I'm wondering if, if you could, before we go deeper into this conversation, talk about how this bill improves the redistricting process, particularly because both sides in different states around the country have engineered such egregious gerrymandered districts to work in their own party's favor. Right, and you know, I mentioned Wisconsin when I started, that was the Republican drawn plan. We see the Democrats do it whenever they have the chance. They just had fewer chances in 2010, but Maryland is an example of a state where CLC has argued that uh, Republican voters are harmed. And so what HR1 does uh, is requires, at least for congressional elections, for uh, an independent redistricting commission to be uh, set up in each of the states. Uh, and to have that commission be a group of citizens who are both Republicans, Democrats, independents, uh, to draw the line. So you're taking it away from the politicians, giving it to, to, to regular citizens, and then also setting forth a series of criteria that will guide the decision-making. And so one of those criteria that's critically important that's added by HR1 is to have partisan fairness in the drawing of the plan. So uh, there's, there's different metrics by which that can be judged. There's all sorts of you know, political science literature on it, uh, but essentially it's ensuring that uh, when viewed from a statewide basis, one party or the other is not having an unfair a number of seats that they you know, naturally in a, without, the, without the gerrymandering would, would receive. Uh, it also ensures, of course, compliance with, with the Voting Rights Act, uh, ensuring that minority voters have an opportunity to elect their candidates of choice, and ensures that various other communities of interest are not split up. Oftentimes, they're split up now, you know, in search of the best partisan outcome uh, for a particular party in power. And so uh, this sort of doubly gets rid of that by putting it in the hands of independent citizens, and then also making sure that there's uniform criteria across the country that apply. And it also has some good provisions of that, you know, in the absence of a, uh, if a state just chooses to ignore this requirement and not have an IRC, or if the independent registering commission is some, for some reason unable to come up with a plan, there's a uniform court procedure. Uh, and so these types of cases would go to a three judge panel in the district of Columbia and that's good because these are really complicated uh, lawsuits when they happen. And so it's good to, to build up a sort of reservoir of expertise in the federal judiciary and ensure that they are approaching it as well from, from a uniform standard. Uh, so this really does, you know, again, at least with respect to congressional elections, resolve the problem of uh, partisan influence and gerrymandering. Well, th thank you, Mark, for that overview. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. For those of you who are, are, are not based here in California, we were able to pass the type of redistricting reform into law here of the type that Mark is talking about at the statewide level. What I would tell you is that in the 10 years before redistricting reform passed, about 10 years ago now, there were five statewide elections in California, of course, over those 10 years with 53 congressional districts that means if you, if you do the math, that means there were 265 campaigns for that US House of Representatives over that decade. And over that 10 years, 
the party in control was reelected to that seat 264 of the 265 times. And since that, uh, the redistricting commission has come into, the Citizens Commission has come into being, not every district is competitive. You can't find enough conservatives in Berkeley or enough liberals in Bakersfield to create a truly balanced district. But it has created a level of competition and restored a voice to the citizens that hadn't existed for many previous years. Trevor Potter, first of all, it's so good to see you again. We worked together 21 years ago on Senator McCain's campaign. And what impressed me so much then, and has still impressed me as I followed your career with admiration over the years, is more than, well, many things. But most of all, the way you're able to maintain an idealism about how the system ought to work with the realism about how to navigate that system. And I know what an invaluable resource you were to Senator McCain during his fight for campaign finance reform back in the day. And what I'm gonna ask you now is to employ that same combination of idealism and realism. We're going through this bill, as you know, section by section. And in this segment, on voting access and redistricting, I'd ask you to help us understand what the path forward is like for the bill. Are there problems? Are there gaps? Are there fixes needed in this bill in order to make it work the way it's intended to? What do you see for its path forward? Well, let me start with uh, a, a question that I think was also raised in the chat, and that is, uh, it's passed the House, uh, on a party line vote. Uh, it is now before the Senate. The Senate Rules Committee is going to take it up. Uh, with a 50-50 Senate, each committee has equal membership. And so what will probably happen is it will come out of the committee to the floor uh, on a deadlock vote in committee. And then what does happen on the floor? Yes, the Democrats in theory have 51 votes with the vice president voting to break a tie. But as everyone knows, uh, the, um, a minority of the Senate uh, is able to stop Senate action on legislation uh, simply by what's called filibustering, uh, saying they object to the bill and they don't want it brought up to the floor and they can prevent a vote. So the reality is that uh, there need to be Republican votes for this uh, in order to pass it, or the filibuster uh, has to in some way change form. Uh, and that would require all 50 Democratic senators and the vice president to vote to change the Senate rules. And so far, it does not look as if there are 50 Democratic senators who want to change the rules. And Senator Manchin of West Virginia has been uh, very uh, direct and, and uh, reasonably vociferous about saying he doesn't want to change the filibuster, particularly uh, for something like voting reform, which uh, has become uh, a, a, a very polarized issue in, in Congress and, and he says in the country. So where, what's the path forward? One of them is that over time, uh, Senator Manchin changes his mind and there are 50 votes in the Senate uh, to do to have an exception to the filibuster uh, or to at least modify the way it's conducted so that uh, there actually has to be a debate that goes forward and votes occurring. So we don't know whether that's a possibility. Um, there is speculation 
that there could be some sort of a bipartisan deal here uh, that 10 or more Republicans would support. Uh, and I read a number of newspaper columns that, that say that's what ought to happen and the Democrats ought to get on with it. Of course, the problem is you can't do that without 10 or more Republicans willing to support it. And so far, the Republicans have, there are not 10 who have come forward and indicated they want to do that. I'm sure there are private conversations going on behind the scenes. Uh, and uh, it is certainly possible that if there is no way to pass the whole bill, that there would then be a way to pass important parts of it. So that goes to the two other questions I think that you've asked, Dan. One is, um, are, there, are there problems with the bill itself? Are there constitutional issues? And here, I think it's worth just stepping back and looking at the fact that although we have a generally decentralized election system and states uh, control the way elections are run, unless there is federal law, there has been quite a bit of federal law on elections. Congress has set the date of the election. Uh, Congress through the Voting Rights Act has prohibited poll taxes and literacy taxes. And those have applied to all federal uh, elections, uh, actually all, all elections in the case of the poll and the literacy taxes. So there is precedent. The reason there is, is that the constitution itself in the original document before any amendments said that the states could set the rules except when Congress intervened and that Congress is specifically given the right to set the time, place and manner of federal elections. And that means that Congress has broad latitude if it wants to, as Cindy was explaining, to set national minimum standards. They wouldn't be telling states how to run everything, but they would be saying you have to give voters certain opportunities to vote regardless of what state they're in. Because we think being able to vote on a weekend or being able to vote uh, by mail-in ballot uh, is important and that we want to encourage people to vote and therefore that's the minimum. If states want to do more to open up elections, uh, and do all mail-in as Washington and other states have done uh, or experiment, that's fine. But there's certain basic minimums to ensure that American citizens can vote in federal elections. So there's a constitutional basis for that exercise of constitutional, of, of congressional uh, authority. And I, while it's a big bill, there are lots of pieces, uh, each one uh, has uh, been carefully looked at and discussed over time. As, as you may know, Dan, the bill itself is a compilation of a lot of bills that were introduced before in Congress, many with bipartisan sponsorship. So the FEC reforms is a bill that was there before, the disclosure reforms are there in the Disclose Act, uh, the redistricting reforms have been discussed before, ethics, uh, all of that. So. There has been a lot of attention to making sure that it is drafted to withstand uh, constitutional challenge. And of course, you know, we're Americans. We have a God-given right, we think, to sue. Anyone can go to court. Uh, and I'm sure there'll be lots of lawsuits. But uh, that's, uh, I, I think it's pretty well drafted. Though I'll close by saying that the one piece that is not in this, it's important for people to realize, is uh, 
rewriting the portion of the Voting Rights Act, Section 5, that was declared unconstitutional by the US Supreme Court. And just briefly in the Shelby uh, County case a couple years ago, the court said, yes, Congress has the power to say that there are some states that have a bad record of voting rights and allowing minorities to vote, and therefore they have to get pre-clearance from the Justice Department before changing their voting rules, which is what Section 5 required. But the court said, we don't think Congress actually paid enough attention to this. The states listed in the uh, act and the most recent authorization uh, at that stage had been there for almost 40 years. And they said, Congress really didn't do its job and make sure uh, that the states were correctly identified and states that didn't need it were removed. So Congress needs to go back. They need to do it again. It's in HR 4, which is a different bill, the John L. Lewis bill in the House. It will move to the Senate. And one of the uh, speculated compromises is that that gets incorporated with portions of HR uh, 1 in a, in a Senate compromise. But that's the one thing that is coming. Congress could pass it on its own as it's written, uh, or uh, it, it could add it to a, a, a bigger bill like S1. Well, thank you. Thank you very, very much, Trevor, both for the, the overview of the bill itself, but also of its prospects for, for moving forward. I'm going to shift to our second segment on campaign finance now, but I'd like to stick with you, Trevor. Um, and what I'd like to do in particular is stick with the question of constitutionality, because the central question, as you know, probably better than anyone in the country, as it relates to campaign finance reform, is the question, is the First Amendment related question, is money free speech when it relates to expressing my political uh, opinion? Is my ability to spend money on behalf of my cause, my issues or my candidate? the functional equivalent of, of free speech. The Buckley versus Vallejo uh, Supreme Court case back in the 1970s indicates that it is, but it's a much more complicated conversation than that. And I'm wondering if you could help us navigate what seems like a really simple question, but isn't. Is money speech? So the court didn't say money is speech. Um, what the court said is slightly more complicated, of course, uh, as courts tend to be. Uh, what they said was that uh, sometimes, well, always money, sometimes money is necessary in order to speak. You could stand on a street corner without spending a penny uh, and speak, and the people around you would hear you. Uh, but if you bought a bullhorn to be heard by more people, you would have spent money. So the court says that although speech exists, the ability to magnify it and be heard by more people uh, may well require money. And the court says sometimes that money can be regulated and because the government has a good reason preventing corruption and other times it can't be regulated because there's no possibility of corruption or back in Buckley, in some cases, no evidence of corruption. So that's the distinction. And the, and the way the court drew that line is to say, yes, you can say to John Q. Billionaire, you may not give 
a $10 million check to your favorite candidate because that has the potential to corrupt. By giving them that money, they're going to be indebted to you. Uh, they're going to worry that you won't give it to them next time uh, and unless you, you do what they're asking you to when you get to Congress. So they said, okay, you can limit money in terms of what you give to candidates. But they said, if you are John Q. Billionaire and you want to run yourself for office and you want to give yourself $10 million uh, in your campaign account, who are you corrupting? You can't corrupt yourself was their reasoning. So they said you can't limit what a candidate spends on their own campaign. And then they went a step further and said, and you can't limit what John Q. Billionaire spends to urge the election of someone else if it's totally independent of that other candidate, uh, if they don't talk to the candidate or coordinate with the candidate, but they just go out. And that's a little trickier. Uh, what the, and I think we've discovered is wrong. Uh, but what they said was, you know, if you go out and do it on your own and you don't coordinate at all, um, there is less likelihood of corruption because you might say something that's unhelpful to the candidate. Uh, and you're expressing your own personal views. And so that's core First Amendment speech. And we don't, we don't think it corrupts. There's no evidence it corrupts. So um, we, we're going to say that if you make a truly independent expenditure, uh, as an individual, then uh, you can go ahead and do that without limits. So that's the, the line they drew. Sometimes money is speech. Uh, sometimes that uh, money can be limited. Other times it can't. And that's the minefield we've been walking through ever since Buckley for the last, uh, I guess it's, what would it be now? About 40 years, uh, not quite. And um, that that's one of the issues that came up again in the famous Citizens United case uh, in 2010. Well, as a, as a longtime communications specialist, I've spent most of my career having really smart lawyers tell me it's not as simple as I thought it was. So thank you for adding to that legacy. But it does seem to me, Trevor, that let's use your analogy of, of giving a speech on the street corner. I go stand on the street corner, I go stand on the town square and I give a speech about something important to me. I'm exercising my First Amendment rights. But if while you're giving a speech in the town square, I pull up next to you in a sound truck and I download immense speakers on both sides of you, crank them up to 10 and drown out every word you're saying, I'm not just expressing my right to free speech, I'm interfering with yours. And it seems to me that that's the premise for smart campaign finance reform. As the president said the other night, not every right is absolute. And do I, do I have a legal leg, leg to stand on with that argument? Yeah, I, I, think, I, I think certainly in the example you give, you do, mm -hmm. um, because you have literally drowned out my speech. So you have prevented me from speaking. And that in itself would be a problem. Uh, the question that you face uh, in the campaign finance area is, uh, are, you, are you actually preventing other people from speaking or are they just not being heard because, well, and that does happen. I mean, there are instances where uh, huge uh, super PACs go out 
compete with each other and buy up all the television time, particularly in small states. It just goes. So not only can the auto dealers not get on and advertise their sales, but the other, the other candidates, other political speakers literally can't speak on television because there's no airtime left uh, or on radio. So the, this money race does present exactly the scenario you're talking about in, in some instances. It's also though corrupt. Uh, it has led to corruption. And that's where the court was wrong in Buckley. They said back then, there's no evidence that independent speech can corrupt. And what we've learned since then is two important things. First, it's almost never independent in the way the court meant. And remember the court said, because it's going to be totally independent, they might say the wrong thing and it wouldn't help the candidate. Nobody says the wrong thing anymore. They hire the same political consulting firms, the candidates are really clear about what they want to have said. Uh, they even put out on the internet uh, what they call B-roll, which is film of themselves so that it can be used by the so-called independent spenders in their ads. Uh, so it, it isn't in any way truly independent of the candidates. These super PACs are all run by people close to the candidates. Every presidential campaign has their own independent super PAC, uh, which the candidate proudly announces on television and it's headed by somebody who used to work for the candidate and the money is raised by somebody close to the candidate. And the candidate is allowed by the uh, Federal Election Commission to go and go to a super PAC event and thank the donors who gave to this totally independent PAC. So it's not independent which was the precondition of the, the court saying it wouldn't corrupt and therefore could be unlimited. And, and that's made, uh, I think has totally changed what the, the court was thinking. And if they knew that back then, uh, they would not have ruled the way they did. And so I hope that at some point, uh, a new Supreme Court is going to say, wait a minute, the reality is this is corrupting because it's not independent. Okay. so. In the meantime, before that next Supreme Court takes up that, that, that challenge, uh, Trevor, you've done, as always, an extraordinary job of laying out the challenge we face. Cindy, I want to come back to you to bring the conversation back to the legislation that we were asked to discuss. Trevor has very articulately and very uh, uh, helpfully explain the challenge of campaign spending the potential for corruption. But HR1 contains a proposal for at least a potential solution to that. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what democracy dollars are, how HR1 would address them, and a little bit more broadly about the concept of public financing, if you would. Sure. So public funding of elections is one of my favorite ways to deal with campaign finance issues. Um, so in the bill for the People Act, they have what's called the My Voice Voucher Pilot Program that is mirrored off of something similar that we've done in Seattle, which is the Seattle Democracy Voucher Program. So basically, it, it, this opens up the door for um, vouchers to be eligible for people that are running for congressional office, 
um, they've had public funding for uh, presidential candidates in the past, but this one in particular would be for congressional offices. And it would be for open it up for three different states. The FEC, the Federal Election Commission would, would pick three states to pilot this program off of the Seattle program. And so how the Seattle program works, it started in 2017. We have odd year elections in Seattle. So we're in the third cycle right now. And in Seattle, what happens is every eligible resident of Seattle gets four $25 vouchers that they can give to the candidate of their choice that's participating in the program. So it's a voluntary program. You don't have to participate in it. Candidates can choose to participate. Same with the piece, the pilot program would do that. So um, participating candidates can get money from, from everyday citizens and not to rely on big money or special interests to do that. It opens up the door to not just citizens to be able to participate more in the elections and be able to donate without coming up with their own money because this would be paid for not with tax dollars, but by a fund um, that would uh, be coming from fines and fees for, for different you know, violations. Um, in particular from corporations and possibly um, you know, wealthy donors. So this would open up the door for candidates to be able to run for office that maybe could never afford to run otherwise. And then it also enables um, citizens to participate and donate money to candidates by using the vouchers. And what we've seen with the Seattle program is that it's opened up the door to allow people that normally wouldn't donate to the campaigns to be able to participate, um, especially lower income folks, women, people of color, young people. Um, we, we've seen a huge increase in the Seattle elections in using the voucher program that enables a lot more participation than it used to. It, it just expanded the donor base. And we've seen many different diverse candidates being able to run that could never run before and actually winning by using the democracy voucher program here in Seattle. And I was excited to see this in the bill because I think it, it's a great way, another option for public funding of elections um, other than other traditional ways like matching funds. The also, you mentioned public funding, other things in the bill. There is also a matching fund program also for congressional candidates in there would be up to a six to one. So. If a candidate got, say, a $100 donation um, that would be multiplied, so they'd end up getting a six to one, so they'd end up getting like $700 um, instead of just that $100 with this. Again, it would open up the door for more people to run for office. What we know about elections right now is big money tends to rule. And um, also special interests are very interested. Trevor talked about you know, independent expenditures. We didn't talk about PACs, but that's a big part of it. Political action committees, especially the super PAC, similar to what Trevor helped create for Stephen Colbert, um, basically gives unlimited money that gets funneled through. And it's often done by special interests shoveling money into the campaign. So we see this public funding program, the voucher program and the matching program in the bill that would just really even the playing field a little bit more, allow everyday uh, citizens to participate in the election, allow more of a diverse 
uh, slate of candidates to run for office and win without depending on the big money donations that we're seeing right now. Because what right now is the candidates with the most money tend to win most elections. And we're hoping, and we're, we're seeing that change in Seattle, for example, with the voucher program, we're seeing candidates that have the voucher program, they're able to interact. And that's the other thing I like about the voucher, voucher program is that candidates actually have to interact with the residents of Seattle. Um, they just don't have a fundraiser with a handful of big donors showing up. What they actually have to do is go out and talk to the people and ask them, you know, what, this is my issue. These are the issues that I'm fighting for. Would you contribute? And everybody has a say. They can hand out their $25 vouchers to all of them, all four of them to one candidate, or they can split it up among the candidates. But we're just seeing it's more interactive with, with the constituents and, um, and we're seeing big success with this. We really are. I'm excited to see the public funding pieces in in the um, in the bill, and I'm I'm hoping that this is one of the areas that goes through. Cindy, I I actually have one thousand follow up questions for you on that, and I don't think we're going to be able to get to them all. But I I also want to bring Mark back into this conversation because Mark, look. You know, money in politics is one of the most visible and one of the most divisive issues in the entire political reform debate. And so it's not surprising it gets a disproportionate amount of attention in the discussion over this bill. But it seems to me there's another aspect of this bill that's gotten almost no attention, which is critically important. And that's the makeup of the Federal Election Commission. And these are the, these, these, these are the six individuals who at least theoretically are entrusted with overseeing uh, the, uh, the, the, the fair uh, 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 process of elections and democracy in our society. And we don't have time to talk about all the ways it's not working the way it's supposed to, but maybe you can help us understand a little bit about why their role is so important and what this bill can do to make it, uh, to allow the commission to play a more meaningful role as was, as was intended. Well, you put your finger on the problem when you said the word six. So if you've ever tried to come to a decision uh, and the majority rules and you have six people, <laughs> you, you see where in the problem is. And so this was, you know, perhaps a good idea. Uh, it was the, the commission is set up now is that there's, you know, you can't have more than three members from the same party. So it's a bipartisan commission. The idea at the time was you don't want the Republican commissioners only enforcing against the Democratic candidates, and you don't want the Democratic candidates trying to enforce the law only against the Republicans. So let's kumbaya, everyone together will only enforce the law against the violators of the law. And, and, and how has that worked? Well, it worked for a while. I mean, it worked, Tre Trevor can attest, he was on the commission at a time when, when there was enforcement uh, or more enforcement of laws, um, but what has happened, unfortunately, is Senator McConnell in particular uh, has devised a strategy whereby the, the commissioners that he supports, uh, not only, you know, they don't, it's not that they wanna enforce the laws against the Democrats, they don't want to enforce the laws at all against anyone. Uh, and so, you know, and this is not only an enforcement problem, but the FEC is a, is a rulemaking body. Uh, and so, 
some of the problems we see with dark money and the lack of disclosure come from the inability to pass rulemaking uh, surrounding disclosure requirements. And so what HR1 does is it uh, ends the six member body and makes it a five member body. Uh, and so that's one key reform. You can actually you know, get a majority vote. There's no more deadlocks. Uh, and uh, the, the other uh, aspect that's really important is it empowers the uh, Office of the General Counsel. There's, so the FEC has all of, there's, there's three commissioners, but there's, it's a much bigger agency. There's lots of staff and attorneys uh, and really dedicated smart folks. And uh, what, this, what happens now is they conduct a sort of preliminary uh, determination when there's a complaint filed as to whether there should be further investigation. Uh, it's called a, a decision as to whether there's a reason to believe a violation occurred. And then it goes to the commission right now. And what, what often happens or what maybe usually happens is that's the end of it. The, the three commissioners say, yeah, there's, there's clearly reason to believe here. Uh, and three say, mm, no, we, we, don't, we don't see that even though the, the facts and the law are, are pretty clear. Uh, and so what happens under HR1 is the, the recommendation of the general counsel's office controls at this stage uh, and launch an investigation unless a majority of the five commissioners vote otherwise. And, and so it empowers the staff to, you know, without the political influence to actually conduct some investigation. And then the commission will have the opportunity to determine whether there's probable cause uh, that there's been a violation of law. And so this will do wonders both for uh, actually enforcing the law and doing it in, in somewhat of a timely manner and in allowing for reasonable regulations uh, where necessary to add more, you know, uh, understanding and heft to the, to the statutes uh, to make their way through. And, you know, th this provision I've heard be attacked uh, on the lines that it's you know putting part it's putting a partisan group in control uh, the party whoever the president is their party can control uh, the the commission, but uh, it maintains the requirement that there be you know only two Democrats or two Republicans and one person who's neither, uh, and frankly it would be better to have even if there's a president and even if that president decides I'm going to appoint people who don't believe in campaign finance law at least sometimes there would be uh, enforcement uh, of, of our campaign finance laws. And I don't think the problem has ever been commissioners enforcing the law against uh, people from the other party. The, the problem really that we have is the lack of any enforcement whatsoever. And so that's, this is one of the most important provisions I think uh, in the bill. I couldn't agree with you more in several important fixes. Uh, but the first and simplest one, I will tell you, um, I chaired for a time, I was the chair of the California Fair Political Practices Commission, and we have five commissioners and had many, many three to two votes, but at least there was a resolution at the end of the discussion. And you're right, they weren't always party line votes, but when they were, it allowed a resolution to exist. So one of many fixes, but I think certainly a especially necessary one. We're going to move on to our, our, our third segment now and ask Gabe to come back, if you would, and talk to us about why this third segment on ethics and security is, is so important. And then we'll go back to our panelists to dig in a little bit deeper uh, and hear their analysis on this aspect of the bill. 
So a conflict of a, a conflict of interest is an official action or decision taken in a particular manner that benefits a politician, his or her friends or family, and is a way of a politician benefiting or profiting off of their position. We, the people, have a stake in ensuring that our government acts on our behalf. They literally need to represent us. Um, HR1 does make some changes here. Um, and just to give a baseline understanding of, of a few things, um, and I'll toss it back, HR1 creates an improved system of ethics reforms, conflict of interest reforms, and accountability for our federally elected officials. Um, this extends to the three government branches, their cabinet, and even goes into the ethics of transition teams and their political appointees. Um, HR1 works to reform ethics in a political fundraising, lobbying, outside compensation, and even recusal where appropriate. In addition, HR1 handles the ethics of advertising by prohibiting things like deep fake videos, strengthening advertising oversight, and even notifying states of disinformation campaigns. The ethical behavior of our federally elected officials should start from the campaign and extend through their service to our country and our people. Um, the wide-ranging topic likely touches many other notes from this evening. So I will go ahead and give it back to you and help, you know, Dan, can you help us understand some of the implications of the ethics reforms and let us know how things are inter interconnected back to voting access or back to campaign finance. So. Well, thank you, Gabe. And let this be my uh, first effort at lobbying both you and your colleagues and Sarah and Sean and their team about the need to do a follow-up program. Cause it's pretty clear as we sit uh, two thirds of the way through the program that we're not gonna be able to cover these topics in nearly as much depth as each one deserves. So I'm gonna pick out one aspect of this segment of the, of the bill, and I'm gonna ask Trevor, if he's willing, to talk a little bit about the presence and the impact of foreign money in elections. Fred, again, I'm gonna oversimplify Trevor, but I thought that foreign money wasn't allowed in elections. Why is it? in our elections and how does this, this bill stop it? It's not allowed, of course. Um, persons who are not US citizens may not spend money in US elections, either giving it to candidates or making independent expenditures under the law. So there are two ways that this happens. Uh, one uh, is uh, by hiding the sources of the money, putting it through uh, some sort of a uh, LLC, a money laundering operation where there are a chain of different accounts. And when the money eventually turns up, it doesn't look like a ruble uh, or uh, uh, other foreign currency. Now that happens, we have a really recent example of that, which is uh, the two Ukrainian Americans who ended up uh, being associated with Giuliani and arrested and this week, of course, there were more developments in that uh, involving searches of uh, former Mayor Giuliani's offices. But those Ukrainian Americans are indicted for having funneled foreign money through corporations that they controlled and then into the independent Trump super PAC. Um, and they gave enough money and promised enough money that they got a dinner from that independent PAC with President Trump at the Trump Hotel in Washington, where they lobbied him to fire the US ambassador to Ukraine, which of course he did. So there you have a great example of foreign money from sources still unknown in terms of who the original foreign uh, sources were. We just know it came through 
foreign corporations and into US corporations and into a US PAC. That is dealt with in this bill by the transparency provisions, the disclosure provisions that would mean we wouldn't have this dark money coming in because you'd have to disclose the sources of it. Uh, and those individuals were in fact then investigated by the FBI and as I say, indicted. So if there is foreign money and it is possible to have transparency to see how it is flowing, then that can be stopped. The other way foreign money came in, again in the last uh, 2016 election, uh, we now know through all the investigations and the testimony was through purchasing of internet advertising. And that's really a different problem uh, because the money isn't going directly to a candidate, it's going to uh, expenditures uh, from the social media corporations. Now, what those corporations, some of them have done since then is say, all right, we're gonna stop accepting rubles, which, which they literally did in 2016. We're gonna stop accepting rubles. It has to be dollars. You have to tell us who you are. We have to have some proof that you're an American. Well, that may be fine for Facebook, which has adopted that policy. But as we all know, the internet is huge. There are lots of places out there. There are lots of organizations out there. And so a Russian group or a Chinese or an Iranian will just go somewhere else and uh, run their advertising if, if uh, they can't do it on, on Facebook. And they'll still reach people, reach people. They can target them. So what is in... Uh, HR1 S1 is something that has been a freestanding bill called the Honest Ads Act. Uh, and I, I will say tooting our horn for a moment, uh, that Campaign Legal Center not only was the group that filed the FEC complaints that led to the discovery of the Ukrainian money, but we are the group whose lawyers worked with the congressional sponsors in drafting the bipartisan Honest Ads Act. And what that act does, which is now in HR1, is to require that ads run on social media meet the same standards that they do if they're run on radio or television. And remember that our disclaimer ads, the things at the bottom that say paid for by uh, and give the name of the entity or the committee, those were passed in the 1970s when no one had even thought of the internet. So they don't cover the internet and Congress has never gone back and required the same sort of disclaimers. So that's what the Honest Ads Act would do. It would uh, first require the disclaimers and the sources. And then it does something else that I think is really important in today's social media world, which is if you take out a radio or TV ad or even a newspaper ad, uh, it is possible for me and the press and others to see what's in that ad. Uh, the stations keep copies of it. Uh, newspapers have copies of, of their, their papers available or you can find them online. But if I go out and I purchase targeted social media advertising, the only people who see that are the people who I have paid to view it. It is not publicly available. It isn't broadcast to the whole world. And so I could run an ad saying terrible things about you, Dan, and run it in targeted neighborhoods. And they'd call up maybe if someone knew you and say, Dan, I just saw this awful thing about you. You say, well, what did it say? Where can I see it? 
It's not there. It only went to those people. It is not publicly available. And so what the bill does is say that you, there has to be a public archive of advertising run on social media uh, and, and who it was targeted to in general so that there is a way to know what is being said in public paid communications as there is again in radio and TV uh, and differently in newspapers. And, and I think that really makes a difference because one of the things we see uh, so much written about is the micro-targeting where misinformation and falsehoods are targeted to particular groups of people and nobody else knows that's being said, uh, even though it's a paid communication in a campaign setting. Okay, so Cindy, first of all, I'm struggling with the fact that my friend Trevor Potter is going to run negative ads against me. And so, <laughs> but once I get past that, what I hear from his overview is just how extraordinarily complicated this process is. And you know, there's, a, there's a saying for those who would argue against campaign finance reform. They say, money is like water. It's always going to find a way through the cracks. And I wonder, as I hear Trevor talk about the intricacies, uh, the, the sheer inventiveness that those who want to get around our current rules have, uh, have identified, I guess the question I have for you is a little bit broader. Does this type of reform does disclosure, does recusal, do these concepts, do they really help to fight corruption? Or are those who are truly interested in being corrupt, are they gonna find a way no matter what we do? Yeah, I, I really do think the types of reforms that are in this bill, HR1, S1, really do help fight corruption. Um, when we look at ethics reform, accountability and transparency, they're, they're just important tools in fighting corruption. Good government requires effective ethical leadership. We need to establish guidelines, parameters for behavior from the people that represent us. If we don't, it leaves a lot of room for people to engage in unethical behavior and creates a corrupt system. Um, don't we want a system that people can trust? I mean, that's what it comes down to. Uh, transparency allows for things like detection and reduces the likelihood of corrupt behavior because it lowers the information barrier, allows for scrutiny and monitoring. It also deters corruption by increasing the chance of getting caught. People, you know, keeping people in the dark creates more opportunity for corruption to take place in the first place. If we don't know what's happening, how can we hold people accountable? Um, I also believe that transparency facilitates public involvement by we giving them the opportunity to uh, for citizens to influence government spending policies, decision making. If the public knows what's going on, they have more information and influence on how and what is being done in government. I think that's one reason why a lot of people don't trust government because we don't know what's going on. And then in regards to recusal, withdrawal on the grounds of a conflict of interest or lack of impartiality, that's another important component to fighting corruption in government. We, sh we shouldn't have judges, for example, hearing cases where they have some political or personal interest to gain. 
Um, how can we really be, you know, how can you really be impartial under that scenario when you have something that you're going to get out of the situation or the outcome? I really think it dilutes the public confidence in the system and it opens the door to possible corruption or at least the appearance of corruption. And I hear that from people all the time is that they feel government is corrupt. And I think having these type of boundaries, because it's really, we're talking about boundaries here about how people operate in government can actually restore a whole lot of trust in our government and cut back on corruption in a big way. Cindy, thank you very much. I do find that encouraging. And, but Mark, I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn to you for more encouragement because I do agree with Cindy. I always like to say that politics is too important to be left to the politicians. It takes reformers like those that represent us and at uh, the, the Nerds Night to get involved and stay involved. But it does seem like the very devious people who are just as smart, okay, almost as smart as you and Cindy and Trevor, are going to find a way around these rules as soon as they're implemented. Talk to us about how we can continue to protect ourselves and make sure that the reform and the disclosure really can help to fight corruption, would you? Yeah, I mean, I've often found in, in our work that you feel sometimes like it's a game of whack-a-mole and that's the case, you know, not only in the, in the campaign finance and ethics side that we're talking about right now, but in the, in the particularly in the voting and, and in the redistricting side we talked about earlier. But, but the fact that that is the case doesn't mean that you stop whacking the moles uh, you, you have to go after them and you have to close loopholes as they arise and you have to, uh, you know, fight to ensure that you are covering the, the latest devious scheme that that's coming up. Uh, and, you know, HR1 this does that both by solving some of these loopholes that we've talked about that Trevor has pointed out, but also with the structural reforms that we talked about earlier that it actually you know, some of the problem here is not the laws, but the inability to enforce those laws. Uh, and so we, together with, with the, the closing of the loopholes and with the enforcement mechanisms, I really do think that you'll see an improvement. And it, the point that Cindy made at the end, the, the appearance of corruption is really almost, you know, in many cases as important as fighting actual corruption. And that's because the, the system of democracy that we have that's built on people's faith uh, that, that it works and that they are actually giving the consent you know, uh, to be governed. Uh, and that depends upon uh, it, it, the trust and the appearance that the system is working. And so I think having these kinds of guardrails, even if, even if a, 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 you know, a, a new loophole is found, a new devious scheme is made, um, we can handle that then, but, but there are enough of them right now that, that we need to ensure that there's uh, trust in the system. Oh, that does make me feel better. So thank you, Mark. And, and thank you, Cindy. And thank you, Trevor. Um, but I'd like to do what I can, and we are gonna try to work in a couple of your audience questions because there've been some phenomenal ones that have come in over the course of this program. But my next question, is actually for our hosts. And so Sarah, if I can put this next question to you, um, we have a lot of really motivated people who've been listening to this incredible presentation from our panelists. I can tell by the kind of questions they're asking, they wanna do something. 
So I guess my question for you, Sarah, from them is how can we help fight unethical behavior and politicians profiting off of their position? What's our role in this? Yeah, um, I think that's a fantastic question. And I think that there are a million and a half things that we as individuals could do day by day to curb um, unethical behavior. But let me just take a moment to talk about the fundamentals. So I would say that there's like a three-pronged approach that we as individuals could take to curb unethical behavior. Number one, first and foremost, is education. It becomes exponentially easier to lobby your members of Congress, your local representatives, and to um, advocate for legislation when you actually know what that legislation entails. And that's a huge core fundamental value to Policy Nerd Nights, hence these monthly US policy deep dives. And two is to know and use your tools. I myself didn't even understand until recently that there is so much publicly accessible information about the US political system that we can all access. For example, all of our uh, members of Congress's and elected officials' voting records, all of their campaign contributions, that's all publicly available online. So know how to use those tools. Go to opensecrets.org, go to your member of Congress's website, understand who they're taking money from, et cetera, and hold them accountable that way. And thirdly, and possibly most importantly, there has to be kind of a cultural shift. Up until very recently, politics was absolutely taboo to talk about with your friends or even your family around the dinner table. And as my, as my co-lead Sean says, the taboo of talking about politics allows unethical behavior to perpetuate. So if we're not able to comfortably talk about the nitty gritty details of US politics, this stuff will continue to be brushed under the rug. So there has to be a cultural shift in a sense. And I'll pass it over to Gabe. Okay. And, and, and Gabe, I'm gonna reframe the question just a little bit uh, yeah. from where, where Sarah took it on. Cause I think from a broader uh, cultural standpoint, Sarah, you make all you, you make all the sense in the world. I see how many more of my students will spend hours and hours and hours every week volunteering their time in their community, but not taking 15 minutes every two years to vote and trying to explain to them that volunteering isn't just admirable, that's noble, but it's not a substitute for voting. The two need to go hand in hand. I think you're, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Gabe, what I hope you'd be willing to address both on your own and on behalf of and on behalf of represent is specifically as it relates to HR1. How can those of us who feel strongly about its passage, what can we do to make a difference and help increase the likelihood of its support? Um, I really appreciate the question, Dan. And that was a fantastic answer, Sarah. Just so you know, I fully agree with you. Education is definitely paramount and we have to get them set up. Um, but really, what my, my response is going to be get involved, um, find a coalition. So obviously, I'm here tonight representing uh, represent San Diego and represent us. Um, and I will you know speak for uh, Amari over at Represent Bay Area for a second and, and join us, represent us, work with us. Um, let's make a difference. We are doing um, phone banks, text banks. There's advocacy at all kinds of different levels that we can get involved in. And, and we are really trying to um, you know, set up events like this and also get on the phone, talk to people, other voters in, in other pl you know, places, um, whether it's texting them and making sure that they're coming to events like this or they're going out and, and calling their senators um, so that their senators know that people are really 
you know, making sure to to understand that their people want these reforms. Um, so, so that's really, I think, paramount is getting involved, join a coalition, um, join us. Uh, if you're in San Diego, you can find us. If you're in California, you can find us and represent us national. I mean, represent us dot or excuse me, represent dot us is uh, definitely a great place to go and find a coalition similar to ours all across the nation. Um, the other thing I would say, and I, I will give a quick shout out to to Trevor, Mark, and Cindy, is join a, a group like theirs. Uh, Fix Democracy First is doing fantastic work. Um, the Campaign Legal Center, uh, they're also doing our fantastic work. I mean, look us up. We will give you some information at the end of this, and, and you can find us. But but get involved. Find a way. Ask questions. You know, educate yourself, but then also take that next step. Call us. Find us. We we can find ways to to you know get help. Um, whether it's social media or on the phone or anything else, we we always have ways to 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 use active and willing, uh, you know, volunteers. Well, that was immensely helpful. Thank you, Gabe, and thank you, Sarah. And once again, thanks all to all of your colleagues at Policy Nerd Nights and at Represent because you really do amazing work. We have uh, several questions, and I want to thank Sarah's colleague Sean for the phenomenal job he's done in trafficking these questions for me. Sean, I think you'd agree that every single one of these questions could be a 90-minute panel on itself. So if I do the math right, that means we'll be here until lunch tomorrow. So I'm unfortunately, I'm going to have to only pick out a couple of them. First one, and I'm going to start with you, Trevor. Um, I, I don't know the answer to this, and I figure if anyone does, you would. The question is the following. Has any lawsuit been brought on the point of voter access that actually, actually someone living in one state for example, Georgia, has less access to the ballot than a person in, say, Washington state, which seems a breach of constitutional guaranteed equality. Has that ever been tested in court? You know, it's a, it's a great question. I do not believe it has. Um, the, the equal protection claims are often brought, but in either against a state law um, saying that uh, for instance, that law discriminates against minorities uh, and therefore privileges other groups and makes it harder for minorities to vote, or uh, saying that the way the law has been constructed, say, uh, prohibiting, which Texas does, most people uh, from casting uh, a mail-in ballot, uh, injures Texans. But I don't know what I'm hearing is a question of could someone in Texas say it's easier to vote in California than in Texas and therefore uh, I am, uh, I am uh, in injured and uh, my rights aren't equal. Now HR1 would of course, as I've said, establish a basic national standard of equality for voting rights. Uh, but I don't know that I've, I've seen a, a, a suit like that, unless Mark has. Mark would be our other great uh, litigator here, but I'm not aware of any. It's certainly a, an interesting theory, particularly for the, the election for president, where, you know, everyone is voting for the same office. I suspect part of the reason we haven't seen a claim like this is because of the central role that states are given in the Constitution in setting the rules for elections. And so while the Equal Protection Clause is in the Constitution, so is that authority. Uh, and that's that's likely why. But 
as Trevor said, that's why it's so important that Congress exercises its power to ensure that equality. The next question could be for any one of the three panelists, and I'll warn you in advance, it's a totally unfair question, but it's a fascinating one. Uh, Cindy, I see you rubbing your hands together in anticipation. So here's the question uh, from Vicki. If we could roll back time and HR1 had been in place before the 2020 election, what, if anything, would have been different? And I don't mean to be picking on Cindy, any one of the three of you, feel free, please, to take your best shot at that. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind. Like, you know, I think some things would change, but like we mentioned before, um, I forget, I think it was Trevor or Mark had mentioned that we had one of the best voter turnouts in the 2020 election because a lot of those barriers to voting by mail and things like that, you know, longer polling times, extended voting, there were just more options for people. And what would happen, I think, if we had those standard standards in there, I don't necessarily think we would have seen uh, the lawsuits we saw from the former president challenging the election. I, I'm guessing that might have been a possibility. I don't know for sure, but that could have definitely helped. Let's just say that. I think Cindy's absolutely right that um, we, we had, as you know, the, a historic turnout on in percentage basis and actual numbers. Uh, tens of millions of Americans more voted than previously. Uh, now, partly that was because states reacted on the fly to COVID by making it much easier to vote. And that's exactly, as Cindy's pointed out, what a number of Republican legislatures are now trying to roll back. They didn't like all those people voting and they want to make it harder, particularly harder to vote by mail. So I think 2020 uh, runs the risk uh, without something like HR1 and national standards of being the high watermark, that it'll be harder to vote and we'll have smaller percentages voting in future elections. What would clearly have been different had HR1 been in effect is those states like Texas that still in the middle of COVID did not allow people to have mail-in balloting in general, unless you were over 65 or were out of the state, you had to go in person and stand in line. And if state, if HR1 was in effect, the citizens of Texas would have been safer. They would have had the opportunity to vote at home. They would not have had to go to crowded polling places and stand in line. And it would have been easier, so conceivably, not, never mind COVID, more people would have found ways to, to vote. And, and so I think that's an example of why having a national base of, of voting rights here is important. And of course, they wouldn't have been voting in gerrymandered districts, and they would know who was paying for the digital campaign ads that they were being bombarded with, which would be a big improvement. Great point. So lest there has been any doubt for the previous hour and 27 minutes, you just received definitive proof as to why I'm just a moderator and these three brilliant people are panelists, because I wouldn't have had a clue how to answer that question. Um, Cindy, Mark, and Trevor, you're going to see, receive the appropriate thanks that you deserve from our hosts in just a minute, um, but I'll jump the gun on them by thanking you not only for being with us tonight, for the extraordinary work that you do all day and every day on behalf of our democracy. I know I speak for all of our participants and our audience members to let you know how grateful we are to all of you 
for what you do and for saving me on that last question. Uh, Gabe, Amari, Sarah, Sean, the floor is yours. So like Dan said, first and foremost, I really want to wholeheartedly thank our moderator. So Dan, I got to thank you and our panelists, Cindy, Trevor, and Mark. Um, all of you are volunteering your time with us on a Friday evening, and we really appreciate your efforts to move our democracy forward, all of you. Um, the work you do is inspiring. The knowledge that you possess is amazing. And, and I've been awestruck listening to you share your commitment to democracy. You're all working towards a more perfect union, perfect union and I really appreciate it. So thank you so much. Um, in addition to what you've heard this evening, please look up our respective organizations at the location shown. Um, represent San Diego and Bay Area will be working hard on local corruption reform and Represent Us National will be providing additional ways that you can get help get the For the People Act to become law. Um, like I mentioned earlier, phone banks, text banks, um, we'll be doing all kinds of uh, you know social media blitzes, they're having meme parties, all, all kinds of stuff. You, you name it and we can get it for you. Um, Policy Nerd Nights will be continuing to do a lot of work and, and I really gotta say that, that they're doing a great job and I'm really, really happy to have been here um, hosting with them. Thank you so much, Gabriel. Thank you so much, Represent Us. And most importantly, huge, immeasurable amount of gratitude for our panelists and our moderator. Needless to say, you made this night so incredibly enjoyable and impactful. Um, and to everybody who's listening and watching tonight, first of all, thank you for spending your time with us. And second of all, let's turn this last hour and a half into action. I'm sure you're pumped. I'm pumped. So let's text bank and let's phone bank with Represent Us, all the chapters across the nation. And if these types of educational webinars are interesting and impactful to you, please get in touch with Policy Nerd Nights. If you want to be an attendee, if you want to be an organizer, if you have suggestions for future panels, this is a grassroots people-powered organization, y'all. So get in touch with us, follow us on social media, email us, whatever you prefer, and we'll get back in touch with you. Again, thank you a million. Thank That's you. Bye. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Policy Nerd Nights, or PNN, is a subsidiary of Level Up California. Level Up California is a nonpartisan organization and invites speakers from various backgrounds to join us for solutions-oriented discussions without partisan baggage. Unless otherwise stated, the appearance of guests in PNN events is not considered an endorsement of their campaigns, platform, organizations, or beliefs. Moreover, guests are not assumed to endorse us nor other speakers in events in which they participate. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next time. To learn more, check out our website, levelupcalifornia.org.